You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new in education. This is Tom Vanderark, and tonight I'm talking to Dr. Caleb Rashad from the High Tech High Graduate School of Education, a leading voice in education. And uh, tonight I'm hoping Dr. Rashad can uh, help create some some context and uh, direction for what we're all experiencing. Uh, Caleb, you there? Yes. Hi, Tom. I'm here. Hey, Caleb. Um, I guess how are you doing and um, how are you processing this? How are you talking to your kids about what's going on? Uh, well, thank you for having me, brother. You know, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I am, like the rest of the people in this country, maybe around the world, watching these scenes in Minneapolis and Washington and L.A., Oakland, um, all around the country, and um, it's there. Sometimes I don't know really where to begin, right. um, if I'm honest about it. But I feel such an incredible sense of like pain and agony and despair, and it doesn't feel like this is just like right now, right? I, I feel like yes, there was. The incidents, so the incidents surrounding Amy Cooper and her interaction with the African American guy in the park in New York, right. and then there was the incident with this, you know, young kid, twenty twenty some old kid, who's jogging and he gets like cornered and entrapped and shot and killed, Ahmaud Aubrey, and then we've got like this this next thing with George Floyd. And the, and the police officer putting his knee on the back of his neck for nine minutes. Um, it feels like that by itself would be heavy enough, but it right. feels like feels like you know this is a, a bit of a powder keg that's been like in this place of combustion for like four hundred some odd years since sixteen nineteen, brother. It, it doesn't feel like it's just this moment, but a collection of moments that are just put us in a really, really difficult position here as a country. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, people are experiencing that. Um, right, it's immediate, and it is this string of, of this year yeah. and, and decades yeah. of police uh, violence, um, white supremacist violence on, on people of color. And then it... Um, it's situated in the middle of this global pandemic that in so many ways has disproportionately killed and bankrupt uh, people of color. Uh, black people have, have died at two and a half times the rate of white people in, uh, in this pandemic. And the pandemic has, has thrown uh, tens of millions of people. Um, the real number might be, 50 or 60 million people out of work and disproportionately women and women of color. And, and so, as you said, it's a powder keg that is, is, is all about this incident and not just about this incident. It's about, it's about everything else. Well, yeah. I mean, my, my dad used to say, you make that bed, you sleep in it. And this is a bed that we've made right from the very beginning. Like it or not, we're all born and raised in this culture of white supremacy. And for some folks, 
this is like revelatory, like, oh, my God, I can't believe all these things are happening. But for a lot of folks in some communities, they've been experiencing this forever. And it's like a slap in the face, frankly, when uh, when when you've got folks in the, you know, in leadership positions at the national, state, regional levels who – who, when, uh, you know, accosted with, like, hey, these things are happening in our communities, they get defensive, they go into denial, or even worse yet, they blame the individual and very rarely take a critical eye to look at the systems um, that perpetuate and reproduce predictable racialized patterns and outcomes. So I know that we love to say, like, we're all in this together, but are we really? <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's not that that's really not how this country was was uh was constituted. We've always been in a ontological war between what one group believes and what another group believes about people. And even since 1865 and our, and and our civil war, we're still like in my opinion grappling with am I really my brother's keeper or not? Do we really, I think we are really in a place where we still have an ongoing cold civil war about what we really believe about people or not. And until... Yeah, that seems all too evident this week, right? Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you think about, like, what's happening, what's... You know, who's bearing the brunt, whether it was Katrina and that ecological disaster or this yeah. biological disaster that's happening now. There are people who have been on the economic outskirts, on the social margins. Hell, I'm not sure if they've ever actually been in, to be honest with you. It has always been, uh, uh, what is it, white backlash. Since 1865, I went, went back to just listen to some old school Martin Luther King in 1967 at Stanford University where he described this, this sort of we take one step, we take two steps back, whether it was uh, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, Reconstruction, 1875 Civil Rights Act, 1965 Civil Rights Act, today – we or Barack Obama and then Donald Trump, right? There has always been a push back. Is what should we think about like the the fight for liberation, the fight for human rights, the fight? Let me just maybe make this a bit more clear. Like the to recognize that all people are worthy of love and dignity and meaningful involvement in this democratic experiment. Not everybody believes that. And there have been, since the very beginning of time, if you go back and take a look at, like, what the history of education was, how um, Negroes were supposed to be educated, um, to how um, uh, American Indians were supposed to be educated, it has always been about um, justifying um, a racial caste system for, for black people, brown people, justifying the extermination of red people, not seeing them as, like, really viable to participate fully in this democratic experiment. And then third, 
to convey land, voting rights, uh, land and rights to white people, particularly men of property means. That is like the genesis of our racial challenges in this country. And we can't even, we were still kind of stuck on like thinking about a racist cop. We're all racist in this country. <laughs> we grew up in it. I'm not sure that we know how to be completely not racist. Um, but I love the way Ibram X. Kennedy talks about it. It's more about having racist ideas about any range of things. He described it as you can be have a racist idea in the morning and an anti-racist idea in the afternoon. And for most folks in this country, we were raised in a racist, a racist country. And so we're all grappling with these contradictions, self-included. And so, I guess some of this is so um, pervasive and baked in to who we are as individuals and as communities that much of it's just sort of taken for granted. Um, I, I was listening uh, to a podcast this morning with Secretary, uh, uh, former Secretary of Education Arnie yeah. Duncan, and yeah. he he said, and by the way, we in America still fund schools based on property taxes, which are the the most inequitable way that we could possibly fund public education. So just the way we have formed our governance, the way we fund uh, our schools, the way we provide uh, opportunities are um, fundamentally uh, racist and inequitable. Uh, and so much of that is just um, in, invisible uh, until an incident like this uh, draws out the conversation, right? Well, yeah, it's sort of like it's sort of like walking through an airport, and while walking through the airport, you get like ding, 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 ding. You get pulled over for uh, you know one of those uh, spontaneous searches of some sort, right? It maybe because you didn't fit the algorithm. And the scanner thought that maybe you were a binary um, man or a binary woman or you didn't fit this particular phenotype. So, therefore, the algorithm says, pull that person. And in some ways, what we need to do is kind of peel back um, some of the practices that we've been engaged in so long and understand what's the underlying algorithm that is invisible to most people. And my brother Brian yeah. Lee down in New Orleans, I think he just does such a great job with, like, describing this sort of continuum of, like, pedagogies, which is more broadly about, like, how people are indoctrinated. Pedagogies, policies, practices, procedures, people projects, and et cetera. Like, all these things um, convey what our principles are, and most of the principles that we um, are these algorithmic principles that we've inherited are grounded in white supremacist ideologies and patriarchal yeah, and I, uh, ideologies. And I, well, yeah, I have to insert here that that this is getting worse, not better. And and you know, <laughs> yeah. Caleb, that I'm a I'm a tech optimist that I do believe that technology can be used for good to help more people um, 
live better lives. And I'm, I'm yeah. generally encouraged by uses of machine learning and AI and that we can use those things beneficially. But today we're seeing, uh, police departments using machine learning algorithms to based on historical data to decide where to police. And guess what? They over police in black neighborhoods and they and judges are using machine learning in sentencing guidelines. And as a result, they're sentencing black people to longer sentences. So th- this notion of the human algorithm is, uh, is now compounded by uh, bad data and bad uses of machine algorithm. Add facial recognition to this, add um, biases built into who gets loans, uh, who gets a mortgage, who gets a job, all driven by uh, by bad uses of machine algorithms. It's now not only uh, human bias, but we've actually incorporated it into the systems that we use across society. So it's time to have this conversation. Well, yeah, I, I, I think so. It is definitely time for a conversation. I think one of the maybe underappreciated, undervalued um, aspirations that sometimes get like whitewashed over is about developing a sense of publicness, an ability to be able for folks to be able to like be in community with each other. How do we live together? Sometimes we talk about it as citizenship, but we really don't practice dem- democracy. We, I mean, kids are like on the, uh, they're generally like on the receiving end of, of totalitarian rule, <laughs> whether it's like as a parent um, or within their school. Um, in this land of democracy, it is very, very rarely practiced. And so we talk about citizenship, but really young people have very few opportunities to, to engage in like dialogical listening, meaning making together, making decisions together. There are a few examples where, you know, schools and organizations um, who, uh, I think for like, uh, you know, facing history, for example, um, is one of these such organizations that it's not about the, necessarily about the curriculum, but more about like young people engaging critically about their ability to read the world and to read their place in the world. Like that's a deeper sense of literacy skills that we very rarely talk about in this country. It's all about getting a job and and um having a career and having like a superficial sense of success but not like a deeper sense of like having purpose a collection of purposes being able to like live in a community work in a community and make decisions together and to pursue things in concert with one another like that's the work yeah that's the work um, we've talked about the justice system. We could go into more detail on the the health system. It's been painfully clear in the last 90 days that uh, black and brown people, low-income communities, have, don't have access to health care. They don't have access to uh, quality elder care. They don't have access to uh, quality daycare. 
yeah. would you go into more detail on the uh, economic disadvantage that's uh, built in and, and I'm afraid accelerating, but maybe we could uh, spend a, a few minutes just talking about education, sort of our uh, yeah. passion and and just uncover a few of the sources of inequity that still exist in education and the, and the work ahead for head leaders. What, what's top of mind for you there? What is, I, I always think about it in like two very simple ways outside of like developing like deep, rich, significant relationships with young people. But I think about one is supporting young people in pursuing topics of interest, phenomena in the world that is of importance to them. My son, who's like 15 years old right now, I got to say, made me a little proud because we we're like in this whole distance learning thing. And I'm like, Tom, yeah, he's one of you. Tom, um, what do you want to study? What do you really want to like dig into? And he, and he said he wanted to dig in like to old school 60s, 70s music like Bill Withers. <laughs> who just passed away recently. <laughs> right. He wants to study he wants to study um music of like the sixties and the seventies and he wants to study um civil rights and the history of racism in this country. And it's just like I mean first of all I'm sorry about to jump out of my skin. I'm so excited. Right. Because, you know, one of the challenges, particularly like people of color face and I'm I'm facing it right now. How do I help my son make sense of his current reality? How do I make sure that he's okay when he goes to the mall or goes to grab ice cream with friends or he's out riding a skateboard or he's going surfing or whatever he's doing, right? I was on a call recently with um, some, some brothers from around the country or educators, about 20 of us on, on, on the call, and to a man, each of them was genuinely not sure about how to have the conversations about what's going on in this country with their children. One of them in particular said uh, his 21-year-old son is what he was like into fashion design, and he's a dreamer, and so sometimes he takes his dad's car, and he'll just drive. Um, through like some neighborhoods with like big beautiful houses just to dream about making it big but the dad had to say whoa son you can't drive around that neighborhood looking at people's houses wow in yeah. our communities we've got to have quote that conversation all the time where are you going son Tell me where you where you're headed. How long are you going to be there? In our community, we know that if some if something's going to go down, it might be involving your kid, and, that, and your kid might lose his or her life. And on top of that, the media or others will develop a story, and uh, not only is your kid lost, but you also lose control of the story too. They'll make you think that your kid was asking to be killed. This is the hypocrisy that we live. Look, none of this is new. 
mean, you, you go back and take a look at like how did race come about? We're just going, I just just going back to read um, the new Jim Crow from um, Michelle Alexander. Brilliant work if you haven't. Just pick it up and read it. Okay, it's amazing. But she does such a lovely job just painting the picture very succinctly about how race was constructed in this country and why, particularly to justify the enslavement of Africans, to justify the extermination of, 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 of Native American people here, and to justify being able to give land and voting rights, um, land and rights to white folks. In the, in the Constitution, though, right, we know this, there's not one mention of slavery or Negroes, right? It's a way of being able to talk about a thing without having to talk about the thing. And in this country, you understand, you might understand like why, what's happening in Washington or what's happening in Atlanta? Because these American institutions talk out of both sides of the mouth, man. They say one thing, like, they, like, like, it's like they hold the proverbial apple in front of you, but a knife behind their back. That's exactly what many, um, people of color, communities of color have experienced here is talking one way, but they always got an ulterior motive hidden behind their back and they're ready to give it to you. If it will advantage them. And this is how it was codified in the Constitution and then fortified by things like federalism to make sure that the Southern states could protect the right to keep their, quote, property. And even now you ask people in the South about it, and you'll hear them say, to protect states' rights. We have a funny way of, again, this kind of goes back to what we were just talking about in the very beginning. It's just two different perspectives on what people believe about other people. And it's either racist or anti-racist in this country. So how, how, how does this help support school leaders? Well, one is if we are not talking about reality in the community, we are missing an opportunity to help support young people in navigating their reality. Freire called it reading the world. Not just can you read what's in this textbook, by the way. I think we should ditch textbooks, particularly history books. Um, and rather, how do we help young people make sense of their life experience in their context? Secondly, how can they make a contribution to it? Once you get young, every, I think it's from the National Equity Project, where they describe every person is an expert in their experience. So having young people do work that matters in their communities, that's um, in small, uh, you know, in small groups or in small settings, those things are like very important, like equity moves. Those are all great, uh, great points. Um, you, you know, I, I appreciate that sentiment of doing work that matters. And um, you talked about uh, the the power of place and acknowledging that every youngster comes from a, a place and brings that history and context 
yes, sir. Uh, with them with them to school. And so it really does start um, with this idea of helping them make sense of their experience in their context. And making a contribution. Like this this is like old school work. I, I'm referencing um, race culture in the city uh, by a brother named Stephen Hames or Educating for Eco-Justice and Community by, I think his name is Chad Bowers. I think he's from up in around your neck of the, uh, your neck of the woods up in Portland, I think. Um, but essentially it's the same idea, and that is the sort of intersectionality of justice. And justice meaning like what's happening culturally, economically, politically, socially, how can young people be involved in their community? and contribute, one. Two, after we've kind of like, not after, but maybe even simultaneously, as young people are like using their community as the context for their for their learning, then we can also look at the environmental injustices that are typically visited on black and brown and poor, poor folks disproportionately as well. So that sort of intersection around justice, if there's a thing that school leaders might want to focus on, it might be social justice and environmental justice. And not everybody wants to do that. See, that's the tricky part. I mean, this is where what you believe really matters. If you think that you know what's best for everybody else's community, well, well, you know, that's problematic. (laughs) Let's just say that. But, um, Communities know what's happening, and students want to do something that is meaningful, that makes their world somehow better. So this sort of like, I don't know, this this line of like exploring the intersection of injustices is something that really, look, we got these little Greta Thunbergs. You got black Greta Thunbergs? You got brown Greta Thunbergs? We just don't, we, we, we just don't like, th- this is like a, a pedagogy of oppression. It's like, instead of like, you know, supporting young people and doing meaningful work that they really care about, and they do, we just gotta ask them. The issue becomes, well, they need to have all these other things first. And so, as the adage goes, our kids get tested, and the other kids, they actually do real learning. Caleb, a lot of education leaders are going to make uh, some important decisions in the next 60 days about what school looks like in the fall, and it, it yeah. feels to me like um, like there's a chance to either be more learner-centered yeah. or less, to be more um, more just or less, to be more equitable or less. Uh, in, any closing thoughts on how we hold in tension the the trust we're given as education leaders as we make a set of important decisions? Well, I can tell you what not to do <laughs> as a way of illuminating, like, what might make sense. But one is you don't ignore the people that you serve. How about that? Um, two, That's a good start. Uh, <laughs> it sounds so simple, but we, I'm guilty of it too. I was living, 
Yeah. Uh, elementary, middle school, high school administrators for a long time. Um, and we get like inundated with all kinds of things. And we're just like in this spur to get the thing done. We forget about people and process. Yeah. Uh, and we just get to the end goal, the product, or whatever the thing is, right? So uh, I would say, if I'm being just a bit more straight about it, it might be to start by listening to the young people and to the teachers who support them and leading with uh, a question that stirs in them uh, interest and willingness to be uh, meaningfully involved in their schools and redesign what school looks like for them. What do you really want to know about in the world? And supporting teachers to uh, create structures that help support that ongoing inquiry, their ongoing learning experiences for young people. So I would say one, well, maybe even before that, be clear about what's really important to you. Um, and this kind of comes back to um, something I mentioned with the New Way Forward Summit is each person in the system, particularly if you have role position authority, a little self-inventory goes a long way. Be clear about what's really important to you. Two, um, create ways by which people can express what they really hope for and fear about school. And meaningfully, meaningfully involve them in, in ways to contribute to the school. And then third, build structures together and policies that help to um, support teachers in doing meaningful work with young people. That's great advice, uh, Caleb. I, I appreciate you doing this on short notice. Um, <laughs> Hopefully I was helpful somehow. I know we were just no, kind of ripping is, uh, a little bit. <laughs> it's a beautiful uh, dialogue. I just, I really, I appreciate the the struggle that you and uh, the folks you're talking to are just having about thinking about how to talk to your kids about this. Um, yeah. But I, I think you've concluded in uh, really important and um, meaningful advice for school and community leaders that even though it's difficult now that we're distanced and even though the time is short and the decisions are many, we just have to find new ways to be in community, to be in dialogue, to be those dialogic uh, leaders and engage people around a, a, a set of decisions. Uh, I think that's the new work, right? Absolutely. I mean, look, look at what's happening around this country, like right now, Tom, with, um, you know, these protests, and we all know that no one's condoning any of the violence that's come out of it, but the origins of it is about people feeling unheard over and over and over again. So then how do we use, like, all of our experiences, all of our theoretical knowledges, all of our networks, all of our resources to pose questions to help support community, be, community being um, intentionally and meaningfully involved in whatever the thing is that the school ends up creating. If I were to leave with one thing, it might be um, to take what we know, what we think we know, and hold it with some humility 
<laughs> and and maybe assume that you don't know everything you need to know. And most good administrators do this, by the way. But instead of responding with certainty, respond with some curiosity and pose a question to the group and support the group in, like, exploring what could be. Like, yeah. that, that Caleb, whole construction matters. Caleb, I do appreciate that you called out so many female leaders uh, last week uh, during A New Way oh. Forward and – and just uh, that, that you hope to assume more of those uh, characteristics to lead with a sense of humility to be quicker to say, I don't know. It felt like such uh, important advice. Well, I am learning, my brother, as you know, um, and learning from both uh, folks who have, I mean, sometimes we think myopically about school, but school is a part of a larger ecosystem within a community, right? So then, how do we make those walls more permeable, those relationships more malleable, and create a, a sense of non-segregation of students from the real world, from the outside world? Um, we all know this, but this is a time to explore what could be and how do you involve the community. Because once you get the community involved in a meaningful way, right, where their voices are being heard, uh, then you become a steward of the community's vision. Dr. Rashad, thanks uh, for joining us on the Getting Smart podcast. We appreciate you and the work that you do at uh, High Tech High Graduate School of Education. Thanks for being Thank with us. Thank you for having me. Uh,